attacks of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. With me today, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello. You can't really say as always, because I wasn't here last week. <laughs> I mean, you are always with us in spirit. Your, in spirit. your soul is bound to the Blood God, so in that sense, you are always with us, Nadia. I'm like that, uh, those like ghost warriors that, you know, when your friends join you at the end of a JRPG, even if they're dead, their spirits give you the power. She is Zion Harriar of the Blood God podcast, <laughs> rising from Indeed. the dead to fight on, as always. I am but, always here. Yes, she is. And she is always here uh, to give a, another Persona 4 Golden Report. We're also going to be talking about uh, Final Fantasy XV's DLC, which dropped this week, including the episode 13 update. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, let's see, Katie's going to be coming on to talk about Persona 5, and then we're going to wrap up with uh, special guest Doc Burford, who has been our Destiny correspondent, coming in and kind of kind of trying to explain to us why we should be excited for this Destiny 2 thing that everybody seems to be talking about. Yeah, Doc is really into his Destiny. Good for him. Doc is more than just into Destiny. Doc is like <laughs> the Destiny maniac. Like, I was reading some of the stuff he's written for US Gamer, and I'm just like, what are you even talking about? This is not. This is not English. <laughs> this is Destiny-ish-lish. Yes. No. Destiny is seriously its own language. I mean, and that's the case for a lot of games. Um, but I think that goes double for Destiny. Like its community is just completely in its own bubble. It's actually really fascinating to watch, but also kind of impenetrable. Yeah. Yeah, you get that with with communities that are, are like that. I always find them very fascinating, but they are, as you say, impenetrable. Like Eve <laughs> Online, I can't even begin to understand that, but it's just really interesting to see other people talk about it. Eve Online fan fiction is much more interesting to read than the actual uh, the actual than actually playing the game. Oh, do you read the Eve fanfics? Do you go for the M stuff, Cat? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm sure there is stuff on like fanfiction.net. Do people still go to fanfiction.net? I don't know. Um, I think most but, everyone has migrated to Archive of Our Own. Ah, uh, yes, Archive of Your Own. There you go. Um, but Eve Online, I, I'm talking more like the accounts of the actual battles rather than the sexy, sexy time and space. That sounds really interesting. If you're really into the sci-fi, I can see why that would be really compelling. Yeah, no, especially because it's being written as it goes. And mm-hmm. as always, truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> yeah, there are so many great Eve Online stories. But uh, something that's not as great a story is uh, Final Fantasy XV's DLC, which dropped on Tuesday. Um, mm-hmm. Episode Gladiolus, uh, which is the first bit of kind of DLC, like major DLC, uh, that Final Fantasy XV has seen since release and uh here's the thing that's kind of interesting and different about it nadia it is Mm -hmm. a standalone piece of dlc so it tells its own kind of separate story like it's still part of the main story like it's happening concurrently with the main story and there's actually Mm -hmm. a point in the main story where gladio leaves to go do his own thing yeah i remember that but this is what he's doing if you care (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I kind of cared. I mean, I, I, I like Gladi. And uh, one of the funniest things I saw in Final Fantasy XV is when uh, Gladi was gone. 
Prompto, just in one of his like random dialogue things, was asking Noctis, hey, where do you think Gladiolus went? And uh, Noctis says, oh, he's probably getting some girls, just like teasing him. And Prompto's mm-hmm. like, that son of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> and just that was the only time I heard Prompto really swear like that, and I just, I lost it. The Gladiolus is actually probably my least favorite of the boys. I mean, I don't dislike him, but mm. his role is to play the kind of, and not the antagonist, but the, the dad figure who's kind of dragging Noctis along. Yeah, he, he's not really the senpai. I think that's Ignis, but he's definitely the grizzled sort of veteran. Yeah, I was actually arguing with this at some length on Twitter. Somebody was saying uh, that they really felt like Gladiolus is just a complete jerk in the latter <laughs> half of the game. Uh-huh. Um, especially when like Noctis is mourning and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, but... Uh, and I was just like, he's, he's really not like he's on Noctis's case, like the entire game. Like, I don't yeah. really think that it's out of character for him to be giving him shit. And I think that you have to understand the kind of context of the game. And like this, this game is very old school in the way in its kind of understanding of like, I would say even masculinity, like mm-hmm. the whole point of like Noctis is like, he's kind of sulky like he's kind of emo he's kind of like you know he's kind of your typical japanese youth right uh kind yeah of in his kind of in his own world kind of in the phone and noctis is like the old school like get up do your duty be strong don't like like you have to be the leader and like the whole game is about noctis eventually growing into that role so yeah. like it's jarring for us from a cultural context to be like for god's sake let him mourn jeez leave him alone he feels like shit uh but in this game's kind of universe and this logic in kind of that old school fashion like no he doesn't get to do that he's letting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's letting the whole group down by doing that he has to be the king yeah. he has to put that aside he has to be stoic he has to be a man man it's, it's very much as you say the, the whole japanese like for the good of the group sort of uh, motivation um especially since without getting into like too many spoilers uh, it indicates that he'd been in mourning for quite a while, and God knows he had reason to be, but um, the stuff is happening, and things have happened to his friends, and he's not the only one who's suffering. And I can see why Gladdy finally stood up and said, hey, you know what, it's time for you to act like a man. Especially since um, I like Noctis because he's, yeah, he's kind of spoiled, but he's not insufferable. He's very much redeemable. He he can mm-hmm. grow. He does grow. Mm-hmm. and But he does need that kick in the ass. And, and that's Gladiolus is the one that gives it to him. Yeah, it feels like a relatively kind of natural arc, if somewhat subdued. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think that the part where the group is kind of falling apart is maybe the most effective section of the entire game. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because... Yeah, it was something else. I, it, it really you know, tests their friendships in a way that have not happened to that point. Mm-hmm. And like, you can really feel it, especially in like certain parts of the game in certain dungeons. I-, I actually feel like there's a fair amount of high level thinking going on behind the design, even mm-hmm. in stuff like chapter 13, like from a thematic standpoint that I sort of feel like is getting lost in, well, this is boring. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I never did get to chapter 13. I do very much intend to finish the game because I actually f- stopped at that that climax, that change that you mentioned, and I was really into it, And but I had to stop for some reason or another. Games, yeah. writing, that's that's it for you. But um, I, I definitely do intend to get back to it. Yeah, I, I actually do think that it falls apart kind of at chapter 13. Like, 
a lot of stuff is happening off screen. Like it goes on way too long. Um, it's really grim and depressing um, in a way that the first half of the game really isn't. Um, and I think the only yeah. thing that saves it is the fact that you can leave at any time. Yes. And I mean, it is kind of jarring because, uh, you know, one hour you're sitting there like cruising the road and listening to Genova, the theme, and then all of a sudden, you know, story happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's like, I, I think that from a thematic standpoint, it actually is important that they go through mm -hmm. these trials and tribulations that, you know, it's always kind of the darkest in the third act, right? But exactly. at the same time, I don't think the execution is all there probably because they had to wrap it the F up and get it out the door. <laughs> Yeah, it shows a little bit, but I am very interested to see what how the next Final Fantasy does for it. Not surprisingly, Final Fantasy fifteen is amazingly divisive these days. Mm -hmm. um, you see people like there are people who are like will defend it to the hilt, and there will be you'll see people who are like no f this game. In fact, Katie and Mike are like insanely anti Final Fantasy fifteen. Mike too. I didn't know Mike was a anti Final Final Fantasy fifteen. Oh yeah, Mike hates that game. <laughs> Mike doesn't hate things, so he's he doesn't feel no, hate. Mike feels Mike definitely feels hate. Like he feels <laughs> love and hate. You can't tell beneath that like smooth exterior, but there is like burning fire in his heart. Well, there was a time that I said that uh, Twilight Princess was better than Ocarina of Time, and he just said to me, "Trash." Just that seething, hissing <laughs> he thing, thing he does once Skyward in a while. Sword. Yeah, like <laughs> just ask him about Skyward Sword sometime, and just like watch him rant for the next twenty minutes or so. <laughs> Oh, Mike, we love you. But as a Final Fantasy XV fan, um, so, okay, it's a little unclear for, for me on this point because I don't have a Chapter 13 save that I can go back to since I finished the mm -hmm. game. Um, but it sounds like you actually have to still beat the original Chapter 13 before you access the alternative view of events. Uh, that is weird. So it's not like they tuned up the original. They no. just have a totally alternative version. Huh. Yeah. So what happens is it shifts perspective uh, to Ignis and Gladio. Mm -hmm. And you are playing as Gladio. And it's actually kind of a kind of a taster of the Gladiolus like, combat and stuff. The episode Gladiolus mm -hmm. combat. So it's... You know, kind of similar superficially, but you're much more defensive. Like, you're not able to, like, warp around or anything. Right. Um, you're using your shield a lot more. You're parrying a lot more. You're not dodge-stepping. And mm -hmm. I, I actually, I like it. I, I think it's different, and it feels yeah. good. Yeah, um, it sounds like it. Yeah, and you can, like, rip down columns and, like, swing them and hit enemies with them. Wow, awesome. Yeah, it's actually kind of badass. Um, but... <laughs> So you're going through kind of chapter, you're going through the facility through the point of view of Ignis and Gladio. There's like a surveillance video that you can watch that sort of, I guess, elaborates on some questions that people were having. Mm -hmm. uh, frankly, okay, so people were really bitching about a particular character um, mm -hmm. who I think I know the one. like kind of meets his fate off screen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they're like, what the hell? What's going on with this guy? Like, why is this? Uh, what is going on with this guy? Like, they're really annoyed. But I guess I never felt like it never it really needed to be elaborated on that much because mm -hmm. the character was basically a red herring. Right. Like, he was like meant to be kind of positioned as, oh, look, here's the villain. Oh, no, he's not. He's a freak out. 
<laughs> yeah. He has his own, like, motivations, but at the end of the day, like, he's not that important to the plot. And if you read, like, the documents that are around him, it's like, oh, okay, like, all right, that's fine. Interesting. That stuff happened. Yeah, that stuff's wrapped up. So you get to see a little more of what happened to him in chapter the new chapter 13. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a little more fast-paced, more traditional, more combat-oriented. Um, and the Noctis stuff doesn't go away. You can... You can choose to stay with the Noctis stuff, or you can switch over to the Ignis and Gladio stuff. Though, once you switch over to the Ignis and Gladio stuff, you can't go back. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, so if you get bored with Chapter 13, you can swap over, but you, like, can't return um, and finish it out. That is a just a really weird, odd, like, a very odd dis- design decision, but... Uh... Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because, uh-huh. uh, and I'm saying this to the readers... This is just my understanding of how they generally approach it. It also could be that on your first playthrough, um, you don't, you have, it could also be on the first playthrough that you can switch between them, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But regardless, they're discreet. They, mm-hmm. It's not like they fixed up the original chapter 13. They have two entirely separate paths. Huh. Yes. Also, alternative facts. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I heard all about that one, and uh, I thought I heard about a making something great again joke, but I can't remember f- for sure. I didn't hear a mega joke, but I definitely heard a uh, alternative facts, and I'm like, oh, cute. The Empire's <laughs> alternative facts. <laughs> I'm Very sure subtle. that the writers point patted themselves on the back for that one. Yeah. God. Said, yeah Final subtle. Fantasy XV is topical, man. <laughs> for now, anyway. So, episode Gladiolus. Uh, do you have any interest in playing it, Nadia? Um, I think, as I say, I do intend to finish uh, 15 because for all its faults and flaws that I thoroughly acknowledge, mm. I can't help but like it. And um, it, it's just really a matter of time. Who has time to, to finish the DLC for everything? But uh, I am definitely interested. Um, so, here's what I'll say about Gladio- episode Gladiolus. Like, it's only five bucks. That's not um, it's not offensive or anything. It, <laughs> it won't kill you. It won't poison it, your children. It adds a, a little bit of a layer of, you know, kind of interest to the story, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, here's what's going through Gladiolus's head. And here's some insight into his past a little bit. And he's hanging out mm-hmm. with this other character, Kor, who's kind of like the, the hard-bitten mentor yeah. of the group. Yeah. And it's a very straightforward, like straight ahead, very linear, kind of almost a boss rush. Yeah. Where you're hmm. fighting like kind of a handful of bosses. And here's the thing. You really need to preserve your potions and high potions in this one. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, you're going to run out. Because there's a finite number. And at the right. end, when you're fighting Gilgamesh, you really need them. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder though, like after spending so much time with Zelda, if I'll be quite as tolerant of Final Fantasy XV's like obvious flaws. Um, You know, that's... Actually, an excellent question. Um, I've been also playing Zelda and Persona 5, mm-hmm. both uh, which I think are, well, Zelda at least is orders of magnitude better than Final Fantasy 15 mm-hmm. in almost every respect. But here's the thing, like, first of all, they've patched it, so they've improved the performance. Um, it helps That's that I'm nice. playing on, it helps that I'm playing on the PS4 Pro. Oh, right. You went and bought that thing. Yeah, but it, it's a really good looking game. Mm-hmm. Um, still, mm-hmm. and it's it was kind of nice to be back. You know, it was mm-hmm. comfortable. 
I still like the characters. I still like that world, believe it or not. Yeah, it, it does have a very sort of the modern, you know, taste that even Zelda doesn't have because, uh, well, you're, gosh, anyone who's been on a road trip can kind of relate to Final Fantasy XV, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I mean, you're not even doing the bro trip in episode Gladio, like, mm-hmm. but I don't know, like, the game is relaxing to play. Mm-hmm. I still like the characters. I'm still invested enough in the mm-hmm. story. Yeah. And, like, the final battle is actually pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. So it's really, I guess you kind of have to take them for their own separate things. I mean, I already know that Final Fantasy XV is, is very flawed, and I accepted those <laughs> flaws a long time ago, and I guess I, I'm sticking with them. I think the final battle, I will I will say, like, the final battle of episode Gladio is really hard. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of the battles in Final Fantasy XV are kind of a, a battle of attrition. Mm-hmm. It's just like, ah, I have X number of potions. As long as I keep healing myself, <laughs> I'll be fine, right? Yeah. Um, as long as I have, like, use Phoenix Downs, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But by giving you a limited number of items, healing items, um, mm-hmm. it it really sets up that you can, like, run out. And you also can't be overleveled because you can't just character carry your character over and directly. Yeah, yeah. The the sad thing is that it feels kind of unmoored from the story. Oh, interesting, really. Yeah, like, I mean, because you're playing it separately. You're accessing it mm-hmm. from a different menu. Uh, okay, yeah, I didn't know you're picking it off, like, uh, from a, a different menu icon. But yeah, that would feel a little bit unmoored, as you say. Yeah, I, I would have really preferred to be like, Gladio leaves the group. And then it goes, mm-hmm. would you like to play the episode Gladio DLC and see what happens to Gladio? Mm-hmm. And then you play it with the Gladio that is leveled up, like that you've been developing. And then you yeah. come back um, out of it. Um, and then it just like picks up where the group was if you hadn't done it. Mm-hmm. And then he returns later with his cool sword. <laughs> yeah, a little disappointing he doesn't do that. Yeah, because I, I think that actually with kind of the additions to chapter 13 and with all the dlc in place and everything i mm-hmm. might have been inclined to replay the game mm-hmm. with like a new game yeah. plus mm-hmm. or whatever as it is uh i mean i finished it i'm kind of like eh, i don't really feel the need to you know go back and play this one again yeah <laughs> yeah even though i got like enough fond of it you know but whatever um we got better games we got we got better games. We got bigger fish to fry. That's yeah. kind of the problem. It's like you go back to Final Fantasy 15 when like Zelda and Persona 5 is around. Hmm. Yeah. Not exactly my first choice. I mean, I love you Final Fantasy 15, but you're not my first choice. I, I said in my article, kind of for hardcore Final Fantasy fans only. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of stand by that. Like, it's not even about the money. It's just about the hour. It's like, is this like an hour of life you want to spend on a game when you could be playing something else? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, if you really love Final Fantasy fifteen, sure, go for it. Mm-hmm. If not, eh, just keep walking. Though it has an awesome <laughs> remix on. of Battle on the Big Bridge. Of uh, oh yeah, I saw, I heard that in the trailer. That sounded fantastic. Yeah, it's really good, and it's it's nice that the developers are super mindful of like kind of Final Fantasy's history and like mm-hmm. what these individual songs mean to people. Indeed, especially I've heard that. Uh, well, one time I went to a, a Square Enix concert, and uh, they played uh, Battle on the Big Bridge, and they made it a point to mention how uh, when they go to Japan, it's always requested, but no one in America really knows knows it that well. Yeah, uh, well, I'm not surprised that Americans don't know it super well, because Final Fantasy V is one of the more obscure versions of the game. Mm-hmm. Not the least because sure. it never really came out here in the U.S., 
um, until, you know, the PlayStation version and then the GBA version Ugh. and the iPad version. Mm-hmm. But like it has its cult fan base, but it's not it's not nearly as popular as four, six or seven. So as no. a result, it's not going to be as well known. It Actually, I did not really know about the song until Theater Rhythm Final Fantasy. Oh, really? Yeah, because I never finished Final Fantasy V. I got pretty far, but mm. I never got to that point. So I missed out on this really kick-ass song, and I'm like, holy crap, this song's amazing. That soundtrack is not one of my favorites from the series, but it's still a great soundtrack. It's not the best soundtrack, but it's a very good soundtrack. It's very uplifting. It is. All right, Nadia. I think it's time for another Persona 4 Golden Report. I think so. All right, Nadia, you're pretty close to being done. Like, we're almost to the end. This is maybe the second to last Persona 4 Golden Report. Ah, I'll miss it. I'll miss you all. But then we can transfer to the Persona 5 Report. You'll, like, totally miss all of your friends and everything. I don't know. Like, (laughs) should we hold off on the Persona 5 Report until, like, the summer? (laughs) I don't even know. Because, like, I feel like... If we start in on a Persona 5 report, like in April, like we're going to lose half our audience because they're going to be like, no oh. spoiler, no, no with the spoiler. No, you got a point there. Uh, yeah, I think maybe we should let it per- percolate a bit. Yeah, it's too bad because I'm like, I really want to talk about it as I play it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I just want to just like keep periodically reconvening and being like, oh, what do you think about this thing? What do you think about that thing? But people are too sensitive uh, to spoilers and everything for their freaking ears, so... <laughs> Yes. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe one day we'll actually do a spoiler cast. Yeah, you, you did one for Final Fantasy Fifteen, uh, right? No, I never got around to it. Oh, I thought you did one. I always meant to get Schreier on here to be able to do it, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, it, I kind of lost the thread. I was too busy with other stuff, mostly Persona. Ah, stuff always getting in the way. I mean, maybe in ten years I'll be able to do a Persona Five uh, spoiler cast because that is such a freaking huge game. It's like a hundred. Hundred hours. Yeah, long. everyone. Everyone I'm hearing from, they've spent like a hundred hours on it. Like, wow, yeah, it's insane. It's a good thing Atlas got us all code like a month ahead of time. And <laughs> now you know why. Thank God. Um, I've had this code for like two weeks, and I haven't been able to get to it yet. And I'm just like so mad because I just like I just started it, and I'm like, oh, it's so good. But I digress. <laughs> That's for Persona Five, which I'll be talking about with Katie, Nadia. Yes. Oh, what? Tell me a bit about what you've been experiencing in Persona Four Golden lately. Well, uh, Naoto recovered, so I've been hanging out with her a bit. Yay. So what happened to Naoto? Oh, it's okay. Naoto was sick, obviously, from the dungeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she is, like, better now and, like, ready to kind of move on. And actually, Nadia, mm-hmm. um, we got a letter about that. Oh, really? Yes, we got a letter about our discussion uh, with Na- uh, ab- about Naoto, um, mm-hmm. which I think I'm going to share with um, uh, share with you all. Sharing is caring. So uh, you'll forgive me. Like I'm having a hard time pronouncing this one um, because the name is spelled J O A O Curzio. Um, with uh, I don't know. I apologize. <laughs> I am not good with the names, but uh, this email is apparently directed at me. Um, uh, this individual says that they are an avid listener, um, and they say that it seems that the Naoto and Kanji moments are regarded as tactless or blunt. However, I do find myself surprised by those impressions every time. I've played Persona 4 and really enjoyed my experiences. 
Uh, before making my argument, I believe it is important to take into account that I'm a straight white male, which, okay, fine. Yep, there you go. Uh, it is really important to go back to what a persona means in psychological terms, and also to understand that those dungeons are representations of the conflicts inside the characters' minds. It is by no means a patronizing or roughly displaying and presenting the matter at hand. The surgical table and all the shocking elements inside Naoto's dungeon are those inside of her mind, what she faces, what she thinks are solutions to her problems. It is not the game saying it is as simple as making an operation. It is, in fact, how Naoto's troubled and scarred mind understands her condition, as if it were so simple and bland while it is a highly complex subject. She might think in her most troubled moment that undergoing an operation is a mechanical procedure that would solve her issues, but this in the dungeon is one of her traumas coming to life. It causes an uncomfortable reaction because this is the intention behind it, to show how troubled her mind is. As the game introduces the concept of Jungian persona right at the start, we have to apply this approach to the whole game. Personas are not just nice creatures that appear. The dungeons aren't simply dungeons. It is all related to the mind and traumas of those characters and how the main character is able to help them. So they can heal those traumas by understanding and accepting their true personas. The persona can only truly awaken when the mind is calm enough so you can then identify and embrace them. Try thinking of the dungeons as living nightmares for those specific characters, the way they think of their own problems and conflicts, how society makes them think on those issues, and how certain gender-related conflicts are culturally imposed and treated. Um, He says Persona 4 is not only a dark game, it is a very profound reflection on the human being and their inner conflicts and traumas. Which, um, yes, I I would say that, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's profound, but I do think that it does have like a pretty solid exploration of like the concept of kind of what the identity is and like mm-hmm, definitely who you're afraid you are versus who you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, that was a really good letter. Thank you for sending that in. Um, I will say that I, I do agree in that it's uh, certainly more complex than maybe what it's presenting itself out to be, especially in terms of Naoto, who is well, actually both Naoto and Kanji are kind of in the news again because I've been told or I'm hearing that Persona 5 has kind of some moments with queer characters that aren't handled as well as they could be. So mm-hmm. people are, are saying, well, look what they did to Kanji and look what they did to Naoto. And I mean, I will go back and I, I, I have not changed my opinion in that thinking that Naoto wasn't so much trans as she is just, you know, hiding her identity for the sake of being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. But uh, something relevant to uh, my gameplay session um, I kind of went through the cultural festival slash uh, bathhouse visit <laughs> scenarios. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my god, okay, you know what? I've heard the bathhouse thing like played out a million times. I started watching anime in the 90s. Can we like be done with this joke already? Especially since Naoto obviously was uncomfortable with the whole thing from start to finish. And it was just really uncomfortable for me too. And whereas, as you say, the, as the letter said, the dungeons... Yes, those were more complex than just like, you know, as they appeared to be. But just something about the whole bathhouse thing just almost ruined it for me. Like this mm. this, this uh, message that, yes, identity is, is complex, gender is complex, sexuality is complex. Hey, can I touch your boobs in the bathhouse? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's so much at like odds with that. Where it's like, oh, we want to have an interesting and interesting... Uh, complex exploration of like these concepts of identity hey boobies <laughs> and it's like okay you know what i i'm I'll, I'll confess with you i don't like risei very much um oh but i do oh, like katie the disagrees fact- with you um i'm sure she does risei but- is the one two uh character one true character i guess but why don't you like risei 
I, I just find her a little annoying. I, I don't hate her, but mm. um, I do like the fact that, okay, here she is very comfortable with the fact that, you know, she doesn't mind being in a bathing suit. She doesn't mind, like, you know, being in this pageant for this beauty pageant. You know, if she's down with it, that's totally cool. That is totally her prerogative. But then when you get, like, the other characters who are kind of being forced into it, um, although Teddy did make a really cute girl. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, I didn't enjoy that aspect of the game very much. Hmm. You're, you, you, you don't like the fact that she's comfortable in her own skin. Like I, I'm trying to kind of parse this. Oh, one out. sorry. Um, I, I'm. I like the fact that Rise was comfortable with the whole thing. So if like, okay, put it this way: if the game had wanted to do a beauty pageant and like with skimpy clothes with the characters who were into it, sure, I would have been all mm-hmm. for that. But uh, then they had like Naoto, you know. Uh, dressed down and like you know, right. not forcing her into thing. a swimming suit, forcing for her the, into kind it. of the sake of the comedy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And th- that was really uncomfortable. Yeah, well, if she had been, if she had been into it, you know, sure. I, I'm. I mean, I've been accused before of not liking sexy things or being like you know not sex positive, but it's just a matter of uh, does the woman want to be part of it or doesn't she want to be part of it or the man or whoever like. Mm-hmm. That's really kind of my drawing, my defining point there. Uh, so going back to the letter really quickly, um, sure. I will say that I'm always a little cautious about kind of overanalyzing and trying to recontextualize like the way that a game per- presents something mm-hmm. because there's there's the in-game logic and what it is trying to accomplish, like trying to <clears throat> trying to have this kind of union representation of like. The, the 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 mind and that kind of thing um mm-hmm. and like the fact that naoto has this really troubled mind and like uh she is kind of seeing an operation as like maybe a uh, a salvation but at the same time she's like afraid of it because she knows that's not for her etc mm-hmm. but then there's the way that it actually kind of presents itself like the what it actually shows so like um, we can kind of analyze and go really deep into the fact that Kanji's bathhouse like has like more than a smidge of gay panic, or you can just look at the way that it's just like here it is, like here is a really over the top representation of like a character uh, of like a gay character, and here's Kanji like being actively terrified of the fact that he might be gay, and ultimately mm-hmm. he comes down to. Oh, it's okay. I'm not gay. I just like sewing. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah, and uh, I will say that kind of bothers me too because one thing I really like with Naoto is when people find out that like, oh, she's a girl, they're mostly like, oh, okay, whatever. She's still kind of cute, and they move on. Like, mm. it, it's not a big deal. But whereas Kanji, to date, I have not. You know, maybe it 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 plays out differently. But everything seems to be like, oh, thank God, I'm not gay. It's not even <laughs> like, oh. It's okay that you're gay. Who cares? Whereas with, they're that way with Naoto, right? Like, oh, you're a girl. Who cares? That's fine. But with Kanji, it's like, oh, thank God I'm not gay. And maybe he's not, you know? Maybe he just likes feminine things. Maybe he's bi. They won't explore it. It's driving me up the wall. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, so it doesn't, it's not very successful in the way that it deals with, like, sexual identity. No. Um, it is fairly successful, I think, in the way that it deals with gender roles. Um, mm-hmm, especially definitely. on the part of like actually kind of all of the characters, um, uh, Yukiko, Chie, uh, Kanji, Naoto, all of them have kind of an effed up relationship with gender in some way. 
I feel like. And in that respect, I think it works. And so I'm kind of willing to forgive. It's kind of like, um, kind of like messed up, like kind of like negative outlook on transgender and uh, being gay for kind of the more positive Mm -hmm. things that it manages to do. I think there's certainly room for criticism. Yeah. I mean, and we have criticized it. We're still mm-hmm. criticizing it. But <laughs> I don't think the kind of positive things it has to say about gender roles should be ignored. No, absolutely not. Uh, I agree with that because Naoto is someone I really do identify with. Um, and that's one thing I kind of feel bad talking about uh, Naoto again because people were saying, oh, look at Naoto. They erased trans representation there. And I don't want to talk over trans people but because I'm, I'm just like, you know, a, a cis female. But I'm also a cis female who, even though I've always been comfortable with with my being feminine, being a, a woman, I've never been comfortable with like feminine things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never liked clothes and frilly dresses and 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 things like that. So mm-hmm. I really relate to Naoto in that, you know, she's androgynous. And even though I, I'm not really androgynous, like um, just uh, she has a a very clear idea of what what she wants, and you know, the game emphasizes that. Hey being a girl isn't all about being feminine no no absolutely not it's yeah it's hard to even put into words to be honest exactly i was Um, kind of stumbling there it's certainly not how it's not certainly not all about how you present Mm -hmm. but uh yeah so kind of moving on from that which we've covered on like over the course of like two episodes now (laughs) um what's been going on so now it's awake and like is kind of properly part of the party like you're in november now like what's going on in the story um as i said i went through the cultural festival i went through uh the bathhouse scene Mm -hmm. um i think i'm coming up on the next part of the the murder mystery and um, actually i'm kind of cheesed off because uh i I saw an anime scene where there's this this guy this mysterious guy scribbling furiously in a notebook and he was saying something but i couldn't hear it because there are no subtitles don't ask me what that's about um oh sorry i should have mentioned that like uh my i didn't have my headphones on so Mm. uh i couldn't see or hear what he was saying um and uh actually uh the main character got a note to at his house saying like you know basically stop doing this stop solving these mysteries Mm. and it was as uh chie said no punctuation no capitalization how cliche oh sorry i was gonna say i already caught like that one copycat killer but he's not really the dude Mm mm-hmm so yeah, everything is kind of coming to a head, right? Like you're mm-hmm. you're seeing that the killer is like getting pretty annoyed that the group is getting close. Who do you think the killer is? Mm-hmm. You know what? I still have no idea. No idea. Should mm-hmm. I have any idea right now? I mean, I was just curious if you've like given it much thought as to who the killer might be. Um, I have given it some thought. Uh, Naoto gave me some clues saying it's definitely a male. Mm-hmm. Uh, they definitely work alone. But beyond that, um, from what I saw from the cutscene, it looked like an older guy. Um, but I haven't really, really sat down and put all the clues together yet. I, I mean, I was always mm. like stumped by by like episodes of Scooby Doo as a kid, so I'm not really the mystery solving type. I always picked up the guest star. So who is this <laughs> character usually... that is being like prominently featured? It's totally that one. <laughs> uh, but. Okay, yeah, okay. So, I mean, you're not too far away, actually, from the mm-hmm. point where you're going to have to actually solve the mysteries. So, mm-hmm. uh, I'm really looking forward to, like, everything that happens there. Like, so, so yeah, you're kind of, 
You're ramping up toward the grand finale, uh, Nadia. Yeah, like um, I have. Like, I'm sure there'll be like a break for Christmas vacation because they mm-hmm. mentioned going to the mountains for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, well, be into springtime, and that's when the semester ends. Remind me who you have a relationship with again. Oh yeah, I took the plunge. I'm with Marie. Oh, you're you're officially with Marie. Yes. Okay, so like you're dating. This is the part where everyone says "ew." (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting choice. Why did you end up going with Marie? Um, I found her interesting. Like I just because she wrote poetry. (laughs) Well, stupid poetry. Okay, I I have to admit the poetry made me go, "Oh, that's so bad." I need to Mm. hug you. So. I did not like engage with Marie like at all. Like <laughs> her social link was not one that I built up Zero. because I didn't really care about her. <clears throat> uh-huh. And I kind of regret it because as a result, she like if you don't build up her social link, she leaves. Like, oh, like really? at one point she just kind of disappears and that's it. Oh, that's too bad. That's kind of sad. Yeah. So it's like, oh, well, shit. <clears throat> oh, darn. She vanished into the ether. Oh, I'm going to walk over here now and pretend I didn't see that. If I recall correctly, Nick Maragos, who worked on Persona 4 Golden, who worked on Persona 4 as one of its like lead translators, or like lead writers, sorry, um, lead localization editors, I suppose. Um, Marie was one of his favorite characters, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I don't know. I can't even say specifically what it is. I mean, I like everything about her. I like how she's such a try-hard edgelord, but she's like <laughs> totally soft ice cream inside. Yes. Try hard edge lord, but totally soft ice cream inside. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. We it shows like how unimportant she is to the story that we haven't even really talked about her like at all through this entirety of this like uh, series. Yeah, you said she was added for Golden, right? You can kind of tell. Yeah, she's not part. She's not in the original. She is added for Golden. Yeah, she just kind of sits in the velvet room, except when it's convenient. Yeah, so it's like. I mean, has her social links been interesting? Like, what if her main, what's been the main thrust of her social link? Uh, the main thrust of her social link has been number one, like you know, getting to know you and the group. Uh, that's first and foremost. Uh, she's been like doing things um, in this world that she doesn't really know anything about, it, like you know, shopping and eating like weird food. Like she pronounces steak really weird with an F. I don't even know how mm. she does that, but she does. Mm. Um, and also, she's been like as she gets to know you better she wants you to help her recover her memories and the only mm. clue she has is a bamboo comb so you mm. kind of go around town asking like the blacksmith and like you know the, the uh, item shop lady hey do you know what this is and they don't really know but um i think it's the blacksmith who tells you that the type of comb it is like something about it is a bad omen but i don't know much beyond that hmm, interesting okay. yeah it is it is definitely interesting that's part of what's kept me engaged What's her link up to now? I got her up to, I think it's nine. Okay. Yeah, so I hugged her. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think her point is to kind of give you some more insight into how the Velvet Room actually actually works. Yeah, exactly. And since I'm, I'm this is my first Persona game, so I'm interested in, in the Velvet Room and everything about it. So that I think that's part of what attracted me to her as well. Yeah, no, the Velvet Room is interesting because it's something that is like a key thing that like continues through each game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like it it is always represented like slightly different um in each game uh so yeah it's in it's in it's definitely in two it's definitely in three and four i don't remember if it's in one or not mm-hmm. um but, i know it's in yeah, five it's like it's yes it is um it's really 
it's like really mysterious and it has like these attendants with like the yellow eyes who mm-hmm. seem to hate the mate the the the, beak, the long nose guy igor um, yeah igor but at the same time are like subservient to him and also want to get out into the real world like in persona 3 like the main character you can build up your relationship with um the uh the attendant in that game and there's a really hilarious sequence where she like follows you around and is like making like observations on like at the mall and stuff on like yeah. what people are doing it's really great actually yeah that's kind of what maria like what dating maria is like she does a lot of that too and she does also mention that like uh the attendants and igor in the velvet room that they don't talk to her and i just kind of felt bad for her for that yeah she's totally left out sucks yeah <laughs> All right, so this has been another Persona 4 Golden Report. Uh, I think I think we'll do one more, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we'll wrap this up. And maybe maybe we'll continue to touch on Persona 5. But uh, I think that we're going to be kind of playing Final Fantasy 15 in, like, April. Mm-hmm. Or not Final Fantasy 15, 14, the other one, the MMO. Yes, yes. Yeah, we're actually planning on finally getting around to that. Yay! Um, Sorry, I made everyone. Katie get a copy as well. Oh, good. And Mike has been, um, Mike, of course, has played a whole bunch. So I think I'm just going to have him run, a, run us through a bunch of content. Mm-hmm. Maybe Sounds good. Maybe we can do a team building exercise. I already made my character. It's like one of those cat people. Oh, so I made, um, I made the one with the bunny ears from Final Fantasy Tactics slash uh, Final Fantasy Twelve. Oh, adorable. Yeah. I'm a cat and you're a bunny. I'm a bunny. <laughs> Let's go all watership down on you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, and of course we got Chrono Trigger reports. Yes, we do, but we didn't have one this time. No, not this time because I, God, I got a lot of games to play, Nadia. I've got, <laughs> I've got Zelda. I got Persona Five. Like, as I was tweeting today, like if all things considered, like I would totally consider just you know if I weren't in the press, just playing Persona Five and Zelda and Super Robot Wars V. Um, until like the end of the year like i'm i'm set i don't need anything else yeah yeah we, we we've kind of got we are set for till yeah we kind of mm-hmm. are but i mean the flow of games continues and so uh we will continue on to be talking about to katie about persona 5 um so don't go away and we'll be right back All right, we're back. Uh, joining me now is Katie McCarthy, who has basically spent the past month playing Persona 5. Um, also somehow found time to squeeze in near Tamata, which, like, I don't even know how you managed to do that. That's, like, really incredible. She plays games at just the most ridiculous rate. But she's been kind of just kind of nib- uh, nibbling away at Persona 5 for quite a while now. And you can read a review over on the site. As usual, it's very detailed, very interesting. Um, and you gave it a perfect score, <laughs> which um, I, I guess I'm not surprised. I know that you were kind of on the fence between a 4.5 and a 5, but you ultimately went with the perfect score. Yeah, because it does definitely, like, I feel like towards the end, it kind of fumbles it a little bit. But mm-hmm. when I sat down, I like wrote my review and everything, which is like a super, I think it's the longest review I've ever written. It's like 2,500 words. It's, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty long, but it's like a hundred hour game. So it's like, you can't kind of can't skirt around like 
a long review. But I kind of yeah. realized, like, even though I was unsatisfied with, like, kind of, I almost feel like they just kind of threw in two endings, and it's like, I was fine with, like, the first one. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. it was fine. But then they're like, oh, here's more. Uh, and it, I don't think it detracted from the game before it. Like, it, it was, wasn't, like, a thing that, like, it went off the rails, but it didn't make me think ill of, like, the 90 hours before it. So I end up opting for a 5 out of 5 because even though I had that problem with it, it didn't take away my enjoyment of, like, all the amazing game before it. And it wasn't, like, a bad, like, epilogue type thing or anything. It was just, like, oh, there's, like, and then some. It was just, like, the and then some I felt, like, wasn't really needed. Uh, Which I feel like Persona 4 honestly did, too. To a Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. I feel like to a worse extent because... I wasn't as into Persona 4 as most people. Like, I think it's a great game, and it improves a lot on, like, its predecessors. But it was just, yeah, it, it does kind of, like, the same thing that Persona 4 does, which is, I think, kind of counter into, like, counterintuitive to, like, the thematic elements of the game before it. And Persona 5 kind of does the same thing, but not to as intensive an extent. Um... But yeah, so I opted yeah, to give it a five. This is, five. this is a problem that games have with in general. Like they'll do really well for quite a while and then they'll like run out of gas or they simply can't stick the landing. And you'll go, Oh, okay. Well that was disappointing. <laughs> like so many games fall apart at the end. Like it's so rare to be like, that was perfect. That was the perfect ending. Yeah, and honestly, like I feel like if you just take out this chunk, it would be perfect. Like so like it really it ends in like a satisfying way. It's just like there's this weird like in between like these two kind of endings and it's it's just weird. It's a weird like I know that they're probably like, Oh, this game isn't long enough. <laughs> we need to add ten more hours and make it like a perfect hundred hours. Oh no, it's not long enough. It's only like ninety hours already, like with just an initial playthrough. Yeah, and I saw some people beat it in like eighty hours, which seems crazy to me and I wonder I don't even know how it's possible like they must have not really done much or something like i feel like a hundred i still felt like i missed stuff um oh yeah so there's a lot of all right before we get into all of this just to be clear we're not doing spoilers this is a spoiler free discussion of persona 5 um so i started playing it last night actually finally because i've been really busy with a whole lot of other games. I mean, I was reviewing Mass Effect Andromeda last week. I've been kind of playing Zelda. I've been playing MLB The Show. Um, So this is kind of the first time that I've been able to really engage with Persona 5. Um, And actually, I played the import version. So I was just getting kind of back into the part where I already was. And, but oh my god, like, once again, like, this game... I just, as soon as you play it, it grabs you in a way that I sort of feel like the previous games don't. Like, it really gets off to a fast start. Yeah, it super throws you, like, it literally throws you into the action in the first scene, which I yes. is such a nice change. Like, it, it kind of has a slow start beyond that prologue, but it's such a nice change of pace that it's like, okay, here you are. And I kind of, I really like the framing of that game where it, it's kind of yeah. like, November is where it kind of starts off, where it's like, oh, you're like, you're in like, you're in it, <laughs> um, and you're just in it. You're in a casino, and you're like, this is really like, I don't know how did I get here, and then it really, it takes like that dramatic turn where you get arrested, and then you're just in the interrogation room, and I like the whole framing of the game before that being like, you're telling 
this invest or this prosecutor in an investigation like everything you've gone through and it's a really smart way to like make the narrative a bit stronger than it has been in the past games because i think something that persona 3 and persona 4 both suffer from is sometimes there's the story doesn't extend to like the in-between like you have those deadlines and you have to beat these dungeons by those deadlines but it kind of drags between that a bit because you're not constantly like engaging with the story itself. You're like doing all these side activities, which is fine and great. And like the con- like social links and confidants have always been like the highlight of the series. But in Persona Five, like the um, the story is like always kind of like hovering over you, and like you have like an in-game cell phone, and like your friends and like the fellow Phantom Thieves will like text you about it, like oh, like, I'm really, like, anxious about this deadline coming up and stuff. And it kind of keeps, like, always in the back of your head, like, even if you've already, like, defeated the palace before that or otherwise. Um, And it's, like, a good way to, like, always make it, the story feel like it's there rather than just kind of, like, forgetting about it for, like, a few weeks at a time and making the story drag a bit. Yeah, you mentioned the cell phones, and this is kind of an aside, but... It reminded me that Persona 4 came out in 2008 before smartphones were really a thing. Yeah, totally. And it's just really interesting to me now, like, how media will portray smartphones. Um, This was the case in kind of the most recent season of Sherlock as well, where, like, when Sherlock started, he was using, you know, your typical flip phone. But by season, you know, four or whatever, which is not a great season, but whatever, um, he's on a smartphone and he's like completely addicted to it. Um, And you kind of see it like in Persona as well. Like in Persona 5, like you're always on your smartphone. Like you're always kind of like glancing at it. One of the first things that happens is that this weird app shows up on it. That's Mm kind of like this eye and you're like trying to delete it. And you're like, go away, stupid app. And it's like, (laughs) nope, I'm back. And you're like, what's going on with this dumb app? Uh, it, It just goes really to show how like completely smartphones have infected our storytelling because they're so ubiquitous like they're just attached to everybody yeah and the that app the metaverse is how you get into like palaces and mementos which is like the procedurally generated dungeon at shibuya station and it's pretty much like you meet you go to your hideout and you meet up with all the phantom thieves and then you're like okay let's go in let's infiltrate it and it's basically like you all pull out your phones and you click the app and that's how you go into it (laughs) So it's real. It's really silly, um, and it and like texting, like you're always like texting your friends or like your other like confidants and whatnot, and you have like little dialogue options in that too, which kind of reminded me of Catherine in a way. But I feel like Catherine probably had a better cell phone mechanic because it felt more organic in a way for that game. But I still think in Persona Five, like I mean, obviously, like the only way you're able to infiltrate these palaces is by your smartphone and like knowing the person's name is like integral to like going to defeat them and everything. So when I was playing Persona 5, um, oh my God, I was getting so many nostalgia feels playing this game. It's not even funny because I've said this before on the podcast. Um, I lived in Japan for a few years and actually um, my commute was almost kind of the same as the main characters. Um, because you start out in Yonginjaya, which is actually in real life Sanginjaya, but I think they changed it to Yon because they wanted it to be the number four, which is death. Um, and then you go over to Shibuya Station, then you transfer over to the Ginza line and you go to Aoyama Ichome. 
And I used to go actually right past Sanganjaya. At one point, I even worked. I even worked in Sanganjaya at one point. So like, I used to hang out in that uh, neighborhood quite a bit. It's actually kind of like movie stars and stuff. Um, the main character staying in a coffee shop, um, like the attic of a coffee shop with a, a kind of a coffee shop owner who hates him. <laughs> um, and then he goes into like Shibuya Station. Like it's actually a really effective commuting sequence actually because it's kind of telling you the story of like what's going on like you, there's an aside of like noticing that there have been a lot of strange accidents going on lately and uh slowly kind of making your way through the city um and just kind of soaking in tokyo and it feels like so much more alive and vibrant than it ever has before yeah that that sequence in particular in the beginning like so i visited tokyo God, it was over a year ago, and that was my first trip overseas, and I totally remember getting super lost in their subway system, like, the first time, mm-hmm. and it really kind of brought me back to that moment, because you literally, you're not, like, there's not any indicators telling you where to go. It's, like, not indicated on your mini-map. It's just, like, find the Ginza line, and you have to, like, literally read signs and, like, walk around, and I got lost and, like, walked in circles for a bit until I was like, oh, yep. okay, I'm supposed to go this direction, go down this escalator or whatever, and... Yeah, that seems like really, I can imagine for someone obviously that lives in Japan or has lived in Japan for that to be more affecting, but it's like a really smart sequence. And you, yeah, and you hear like people over talking about like, oh, there's been these like incidents in the subway or trains are like derailing and conductors are like going crazy or whatever. And it kind of like sets the tone for the rest of the game in a way. Yeah, Shibuya Station is actually a labyrinth. It is can be completely overwhelming if that is the first time you've ever been there. It's even worse if you're in Shinjuku Station, which is just, I mean, it's basically its own world. I mean, like, I can't even describe it, especially if you're not super, like, familiar with train stations or super well-versed in them. So, yeah, I hadn't even thought about, like, the fact that the game is almost asking you to get lost in Shibuya Station to kind of reflect upon the fact that you as a main character um are new to tokyo like you do not live there you're a transfer student um you've been transferred to a new school because of an incident where um well you saved um a woman from a guy who's apparently very powerful and is going to completely screw you over and everything um i found that sequence uncomfortable though of course obviously it's meant to be yeah um, but there was actually a line very, very, very early on within like less than an hour in where the, the coffee shop owner's like, oh, like you just had to stick your nose into like adult business. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, it's what? So it made me so frustrated because he did a good thing. He basically saved that woman from getting sexually assaulted and everyone, like all the adults, like the teachers, the principal, they're like, oh, you're the troublemaker. You got like expelled from your high school for like assaulting a man. And it's like. He saved a, like, what? It, and, like, the, uh, it makes me so frustrated. <laughs> Which is good, because it, like, made me, f- like, really identify with him. Because I was like, man, I'd be yeah. pissed off, too. Like, I, I feel this. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Because, like, it immediately establishes your character as, like, really sympathetic. But also, like, there's a you against the world kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and it makes total sense that like almost despite yourself you would start falling in with the quote-unquote troublemakers uh throughout the game like 
one of the first people that you meet is Ryuji, who um, has uh, like the blonde hair, like the blonde hair kind of thing is like a signifier of being like really punk. Yeah, he has like Shibuya his and that kind of thing. Up and mm-hmm. doesn't wear the uniform on like the top half. He wears like a graphic tee. Like you said that it was like. He comes to punk by way of like Hot Topic in a Ramones song. Yeah, like it sounds like he, like, or his look is like he walked into a Hot Topic and heard like one punk song, like the Ramones, and was like, okay, I'm punk now. It's such, and like it's badly bleached <laughs> hair. It's, it's kind of hilarious, but it like makes sense. Like his story, like it's justified in the narrative, I think, like why he's like mm. that and why he's like so angry at the world. I uh, like I mean it makes total sense like I think a lot of teenagers are like that right mm-hmm. where it's just like I'm so punk I'm so like I'm so badass look at me right um I'm going to hot topic <laughs> yeah like he because he was like a kind of like a jock before or that's how like, it's kind of framed yeah. and then he got like disgraced in a way and he just doesn't he's not a track star anymore so it's like he's kind of rebelling in his own way and he's like known as like the local school rebel <laughs> Or whatever yeah so uh, let's move off the story a little bit because i don't really want to get like super into detail about yeah, this um like to avoid uh like any like substantial spoilers to, to be clear like what we're talking about is literally within like the first hour of the game yeah so, like really early um this is like establishing like this is establishing the premise of the game where you are um you know, kind of like falling out into like a gang of thieves. Um, and of course, there's the velvet room and all of the usual things that you would come to associate with Persona 5. Um, once the game kind of gets going properly um, and you go into your kind of first palace, uh, a couple things jumped out at me. First of all, yeah, like I've said this before, but my God, this game is so stylish. And you said that you, you seem to be kind of down on the battles of the previous Persona games. Um, which, I mean, I think that they're fine, but they aren't nearly as just, like, they just don't, they're just not as vibrant as what you get in Persona 5. Like, they just really go all out on it. Yeah, like, the, like, I think these games have always had style, and that's kind of how I've always been drawn to them as a fan of JRPGs. But Persona 5, like, takes it to a whole other level. Like, it, and it really feels, like, thematically reverent, because it's, like, you're a Phantom Thief, and you, like, sent send like calling cards and every menu has like the same kind of like ransomy note like you know like cut out letters from like a magazine that they send the calling cards with because obviously they can't have handwriting and it just all it it just fits like everything kind of clicks together in this like really satisfying way yeah totally but even when you're just like you're fighting and stuff like the 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 menu the way that the menu looks right and how fast everything goes mm-hmm. um compared to the previous games which were fast but not that fast you know yeah and as you develop your confidence which is basically the persona 5's version of social links like you unlock like baton passes which are depending on whoever you're bonding with and baton passes basically let you chain attacks so it's kind of like what I think Tokyo Mirage Sessions had something similar, if I'm recalling correctly. And it's basically, like, if you if you hit, like, an enemy's weakness, they'll fall to the ground, and then you can do a baton pass to a teammate, and they can do an attack, but it doesn't use up their turn. So it's, like, ideally, if you've, like, been 
like patient with or like doing your confidants right you can have like a baton pass with like all four members of your team so it's just like you can chain these like massive attacks and like knock every enemy down and then do like an all-out attack which is also super like the typical all-out attack from all the other persona games um and yeah it like makes it seem fast and like everyone does like a high five when they do the baton pass which is like (laughs) really like silly and it's just like yeah they're they're doing it like they're just gonna keep beating up these enemies and look really good while doing it so what you're saying is that i should really prioritize um social links with my uh primary party members even more than usual i would say yeah um i wrote a guide and tips that is on usgamer.net right now that is that i kind of suggested some confidants to prioritize i definitely recommend team members and like a few other characters that offer uh other benefits because in persona 5 you're not just getting stronger persona fusioning or whatever you get other abilities too um which i think makes the confidants feel almost a little bit more worthwhile because like okay i'm gonna get this cool ability later on down the line that i can't get anywhere else and yeah, I definitely recommend prioritizing team members because you get like in battle stuff. So it's like baton passes. Sometimes they can like endure like a deadly hit or they'll like endure a deadly hit for you. They'll like push you out of the way, which is like also like a really silly like sequence. Um, and yeah, like I I recommend that because and it also makes like the battles more fun. Like sometimes they'll even the party members you don't have in your party lineup will like hop out and be like, do you want some help? And then they'll, like, snipe an enemy from afar, and it's, like, really crazy. How hard is Persona 5 compared to kind of some of the other games in the series? <sighs> this is hard. I, I feel like it's almost the easiest, which is... But I wouldn't say it's, like, easy. It, it more feels like... I feel like it'd be harder if you're not keeping up with, like, Mementos, which is the proce- optional procedurally generated dungeon. Um... Like, if you don't keep up with that, I could see the game being harder. But since I was always doing all the side targets in there, um, I always felt like I was pretty well leveled up. And I would switch out my party members really frequently, uh, depending on the palace I was taking on. And I think towards the end, like, the last dungeon kind of has a little difficulty spike. But it's not like... I never felt like I had to grind or anything. Which I feel like in the past Persona games, I definitely did have to grind. But, uh, I mean, which is mm. kind of a good thing and a bad thing. Because so sometimes I like grinding, but, I mean, I didn't, like, miss it in Persona 5 because it felt really natural. It was just like, yeah, I'm always strong enough. And there are some challenges, the boss fights. Like, there's never, like, an easy boss fight or anything. Um, but, yeah. I'm actually really anti-grinding uh, in games because I just feel like game design has evolved beyond that. Because yeah, true. grinding... Grinding was essentially padding back in the day, right? Like, mm-hmm. they go, well, we only have so much, like, time and memory. So the way that we're going to s- extend out this RPG is we're going to just, like, put a pretty high barrier that you have to eventually reach. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to fight the same battles over and over again until you have reached a certain level. And then you'll be able to access this point. I think uh, designers are a lot savvier now and have a lot more tools at their disposal to make the pacing feel natural without like making it too easy yeah it's like persona 5 i think it's really accessible for newcomers too that have never played like a persona Mm. or shimigami tensei game because it really eases you into it um and obviously there's harder difficulties but i think like change like how much damage you intake and stuff and like 
slight balance changes like that. Um, and I played it on normal just to, I guess, <laughs> throw that out there. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm not playing it on hard. I just want to be able to enjoy it and playing it on normal. So yeah, there's like an easy totally and fine. a safe mode. Yeah, safe mode. I think you never die or something. It's. I was like, that's. I mean, that's kind of ideal for people that don't want any challenge, just want to experience like the social links and stuff. Um, yeah. So it's a visual novel. Yeah, it makes it a visual novel, which is. I mean, you still have to do the battles, but I don't think you ever like game over with it. Like you're not gonna go in a palace and then die and then have to restart from your last save point or whatever. Um, how complicated are the palaces like so in persona 4 like one thing that like i was never like a huge fan of like i I wouldn't say that the the dungeons are superfluous so to speak but i didn't like that you could just knock them out in one night and then kind of leave and be done um so how like do do you have to like kind of come back over the course of like multiple times like can you kind of do it in like one go like how complicated are they i feel like you could do it in one go if you were really well prepared like if you had like a lot of sp items on you and stuff but i i'd find myself doing it over the course of like two or three nights or or afternoons um because kind of like a daytime thing um so i'd say it's like a little more time investing than like four but not as much as three because three have to like really get in there and do it a lot and like account for being tired and stuff whereas in five it's like you go when you feel like i how i would usually work it out is i just try to knock it out early in the month which is like over the course of like a few days within one week but i never do it like two days in a row i'd always like kind of like stock up on items and like upgrade my weapons and try and do stuff like that before i re-enter the palace um but yeah i'd say they, they usually take like a few hours, maybe a little bit more, but also you have to account for using SP, which is like your magic, obviously. And that's kind of like how you measure like, okay, I need to leave like all my teammates are really low SP and I don't really want to waste these items until like a boss fight and kind of like accounting for that and like being strategic with that. Um, but if you're like super well prepared, you could probably knock it out. It's just going to be like, real. I, I, I prefer kind of like doling it out over the course of a few days uh, because I'm not wasting all my items. Because there's, I I think in early on I did a palace pretty much in one go, and then when I got to the boss fight, I was like, I don't have any items. This was like a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, because like how it works is you you can you go through the whole palace. You have like check. There's like save points and whatnot, so you can kind of like stop at every save point if you want, or you could just keep going until your like SP's low. And then you get to the point where you've, like, secured your pathway to the treasure. So you leave the palace at that point. You kind of have time to stock up on items or whatever. And then you send the calling card, which is basically after you send the calling card, then you enter, like, a cutscene, and then you go into the palace again. And your goal is only to get to the treasure, but then you have a boss fight. And it's pre- that's, like, the routine of it. But there's one time where I didn't stock up on items. I was like, I'm just going to send the calling card tomorrow. I'm totally good. And it was a mistake, uh, so I had to like load up a pass save, and then I was smart about smarter about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you can totally do it in one night, yeah. but I wouldn't recommend it because you'd be like, unless you have a lot of items and you can, you're fine with just always using items and not saving them. Because I kind of hoard items, like I never try to use them unless they're SP stuff. 
Yeah, that's the thing with Persona games and SMT games in general. They always make uh, a dive into a dungeon like feel like a big expedition and you better be prepared because otherwise you're going to be like in deep trouble, which, uh, you know, I'm kind of fine with. Like, I like that aspect of the game. Um, really quickly, could you just talk quickly about like mementos like and what exactly like they mean to the structure of the game? Yeah, so mementos is this procedurally generate it's kind of like the tartarus from persona 3 but upside down so it kind of digs into the pit of shibuya station it has these like various <laughs> floors and everything and it has like blocks like persona 3 did um i can't i feel like they're called blocks again persona 5 but i can't remember exactly and you can it's it's totally optional though i don't recommend like not doing it ever um because it helps you level up and it's just and it gives you like little side stories too because you'll be going after these optional targets which are so your confidant uh yuki mishima i think his name is he runs the phantom thieves fan site and there's like a forum there and people will like complain like there's this person in my life and they're really terrible or they're like verbally abusive at work or this guy's like torturing cats and there's like all these little like weird nuggets of story and some you have to like go undercover for it's like oh like you should go like get a job at this bar to figure out this guy's name so we can go attack because you have to know the person's full name to have them be a target in mementos so it's like sometimes you have to go like kind of be like a detective and like snoop around and find this person's name or whatever before you can go actually go after them in mementos and basically like they'll show up as like a little exclamation point in one block but you don't know what floor they're on so you kind of have to scavenge like a whole block for it like the target and usually morgana who's your support person or futaba who's like later a support person they'll be like oh i feel like the target's on this floor let's look for them so it's kind of like you know you're not like roaming around like endlessly like you're you know, like, kind of where they are. You just don't know, like, the exact spot. And it's procedurally generated, so, like, every floor is never, like, the same. But they all kind of look the same. Like, each block kind of, like, has a different color scheme and everything. But, yeah, it's... I, I enjoyed Mementos. Like, I didn't... I spent as much time as I could in there. Like, whenever I had targets, I would usually let, like, a few stack up. So, if, if there were, like, three or four I had to go after, I'd just go and spend, like, an afternoon of Mementos and just go after a bunch of people and at once so it's like because it does take time out of your day so it's kind of like i try to get a bunch over with at once and let them build up and usually mishima would like text you about like heads up about them like tips or whatever and also there's some confidence that where they will arise naturally (laughs) um but yeah i don't recommend uh just leaving it alone because you'll regret it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as it so goes right yeah um, like, i mean i'm sure there are people that are just not gonna pay attention <laughs> i i'm well i mean the people who beat in 80 hours might have totally left it alone yeah it's totally true um they could have <laughs> it kind of reminds me actually of like the 100 floor tower or whatever in lufia 2 which uh, did you ever play lufia 2 no i haven't i mean in that it's like completely optional and that kind of thing mm. but um yeah, I'm not usually a fan of like that kind of stuff, but I like that it has a feeling of having like a whole bunch of side quests and stuff. Like, I like that kind of aspect of having something extra to do outside of the main story. Like, there's always been you know something to do in Persona, whether it's like getting a job or like pursuing social links or 
um, building up your uh, your food or whatever. But I can't really think of like, say in Persona 4, like actually having side quests that require like combat and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a it's a nice thing too when you're like in between palaces because the palaces are like obviously timed and they change every like every person you're going after. So it's like a nice way to break that up too. So it's not like you're always tackling palaces. Like you have this other thing too that's never the same because it's procedurally generated. Um, and it's yeah, it's like a nice way to add it if you want or you can just focus on other things um so it gives you that option but obviously if if you ignore it i feel like you'd be really under leveled for like the next palace um and everything it's like it's a good way to keep players like or inspire players to keep actually like remaining strong rather than just focusing on other things um yeah yeah so um all i know is that when i was playing persona 5 last night i felt a soaring sense of joy that i so rarely um like have when i'm playing a lot of games like a lot of games i'm like i'm enjoying this game this is fun but with persona 5 it was giving me just this wonderful happy glowing feeling of like just really having fun um and it's the kind of feeling that I tend to associate with my very, very favorite games. And the fact that I was getting that so early on, uh, especially given like the history of uh, Persona games kind of starting out really slowly and being kind of slow burns, like I think really bodes well for how well I'm going to enjoy this game. Um, uh, there just seems so much to it. And it's so totally seems like the, like the eight year wait is going to be worth it. So I... I'm really glad that you enjoyed it, and I really can't wait to de- dive in more, and I can't wait to do a spoiler cast yeah. with you. I'm excited to do a spoiler cast. It's been killing it, me not being able to talk about yeah. this game at any capacity, because I've It been must in- be driving you crazy, because you're like going, I've been playing this game for like a month, and I know all of the things, and I just want to talk about them, because I have so much to say. Yeah, like I, yeah, I've been playing it for two months, and, and I'm like playing other games in between, and I'm just like, oh, I just want to go back to Persona. <laughs> but... <laughs> Now I can kind of talk about it, so that's great. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So we never ended up doing that Final Fantasy fifteen spoiler cast, but maybe maybe one day we will do a Persona 5 spoiler cast. Maybe when I finish it and I'm like, I just got to talk about it. I'm going to get Katie on the show <laughs> so that I can talk out. about it. Yeah. I want to do a Persona 5 report, but I'm afraid that I'm going to lose half my audience because they'll be like, nope, don't want to be spoiled. <laughs> Which, eh, whatever. But Maybe next week. Okay, we'll do that. We'll have you back on the show as usual, Katie. But thanks for the review. Go check out Katie's review over on the site. Um, And next, we're going to have Doc Burford on the show. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Destiny 2 reveal. So don't go away. All right, and we're back one more time. <laughs> Three-part episode, kind of a long episode, but I digress. And here we have first-time visitor to the podcast, but now friend of the pod, uh, Doc Burford. Welcome to the show. Yeah, Doc, uh, you are kind of a newcomer to the site in general. You've been kind of our destiny correspondent. You've been writing a lot of really good stuff on the site about Destiny from kind of a hardcore perspective um, that we haven't really had on the site until now. You are a Destiny super fan. And for the skeptical people 
on this podcast, like, what is it about Destiny that, like, just really clicks with you? It's the range. Um, you know, you, you play some games and they, they kind of have their niche, right? Like, Dark Souls is a very hardcore game. And then uh, Pokemon Shuffle, which is a game I play all the time, is a very casual game, right? Destiny has this really broad range where you can hop on and just play really casually for, like, 20 minutes. Or you can jump in for, like, six hours and play really, really difficult content. It kind of... It lets you do everything you want to do within the shooter space. If you want to play co-op, you can play co-op. If you want to play solo, you play solo. If you want to play competitive, you got competitive. It's everything. Yeah, in that respect, it is just like, it, it has such a broad range and everything. But what is it about this game that just like sucks people in to such an extent? Like I was reading your your Age of Triumph, um, like kind of breakdown and like you were talking about all the raids and everything. And it felt like you were... It felt like you were speaking a, a language other than English um, <laughs> at a lot of points. Um, and it just occurred to me, like, the Destiny community just totally has its own language. Like, everything's going on. Like, it, it never struck me as that interesting of a game. Like, I mean, there's quite a lot of grinding going on, certainly. Um, and I, I guess there's the thrill of teamwork and everything. But people have just, like, gone down this giant rabbit hole of, like, especially when it comes to the loot. Yeah, it's um, it's a game that has a lot going on, even though it often doesn't seem like that. Like, if you, if you wanted to ask me all the problems I have with the game, I could go on for, like, hours. But uh, what it does really well is it just kind of sucks you in with always having something to do. And then, I mean, there is nothing like the raids in existence. It's got this sort of weird personality to it. Um, it it's a personality Bungie's had for years, like, we're talking since Marathon back in the early 90s, um, where they have weird names for things and they have little bits and pieces of dialogue that are just kind of, they have a really unique personality. I don't quite know how to describe that. But, uh, you know, then there's stuff that the fan kind of, the fan community kind of uh, absorbed. Like uh, there was a, a vandal that everyone named Randall. And it's just one of the enemies mm-hmm. in the game who just happens to be really tough. Um, he's not supposed to be, he got glitched or something, but for whatever reason, he's really powerful. And instead of patching him out, Bungie like has left him in as this sort of very specific character that people fight, even though he's sort of just a random abnormally named guy. It's, it's, it's a weird, (laughs) it's a weird game. I, yeah, it's, there is so much to find in it, like the the Books of Sorrow, which were published for uh, The Taking King. Um, it was part of the, the grimoire that they have on their website. Um, probably some of the best science fiction I've read in a while. Wow. Yeah, okay, that's that's a lot of it's, praise. It's got this actually great sort of story going on in it that tells the origin story of sort of the big bad of The Taking King's boss, which is, his name is Oryx. Um, and it's really unusual that anyone would do this it's frustrating the community that's not in the game and it's just on the website but it's i I don't know they they provide lots of really detailed and weird things that make it sort of absorbing to the community yeah bungie really loves its lore right oh god do they ever (laughs) uh let's see so we're kind of like at late stage destiny one um the age of triumph is kind of the grand finale they're bringing back all of the the different raids and different weapons from like all of the content across the entire game. Uh, everybody's kind of revisiting all of that old stuff, getting old weapons that they might have missed, that kind of thing. People are very excited. Um, it's been, it hasn't actually been three years. It's been about 
two and a half years at this yeah, point. Yeah, it'll be three years this um, September. Can you give me kind of like just a really, really broad Cliff's Notes of like how Destiny got to be better, like how it got to be, you know, like when it first came out, it was like, man, it's really bare bones. Like it has a ton of problems. It's like super grindy. Like I just kind of ran out of content, etc. But by the time of Taking King, people are like, oh yeah, Bungie's kind of figuring it out. And ever since then, it feels like people are like, I like Destiny and Destiny is a good game. So can you... Can you give me kind of an overview of like how it got to that point? Yeah, so uh, the game had released, and a lot of people got really upset because of really sort of weird and dumb mistakes, like uh, engrams, which are, are like loot packages that you get. Instead of just like getting specific loot off the ground, you actually get a package, and then you take it to a guy, and he, he opens it up for you. Um, those, like if you got a purple one, you know, legendary loot quality, lots of games have purple as a really high rare like signifier uh if you opened a purple package it could decrypt any it could like turn into anything of lower rarity than that so like purple is this is the best it can be but what everybody wanted was if it's a purple thing it's always going to decrypt into purple or better um so Bungie had a lot of like little problems like that that they fixed um kind of within that first six to twelve months where it was just like constant little tweaks um the first the first DLC came out in December, um, so just a few months after release. I think I heard it involved like nine straight weeks of work, um, nonstop, and it, almost no testing. Uh, so they had this second raid that was kind of good, but really easy to exploit. So there were like a ton of exploits, and Bungie focused on that for a while. And then uh, everything kind of cooled off. They didn't really do a whole lot. The game just kind of was what it was. Um, occasional patches and stuff, but... Other than fixing like a couple of these really big problems, like a, a heavy weapon glitch where ammo, you'd, you'd always have less ammo than you started out with, like on respawn. So rocket ammo is really rare. Um, you like you, you almost never got it at that point, especially, and you would just lose ammo every time you spawned in anywhere, which really frustrated players. But so Bungie's like fixing all these little things, but where it really starts to get good is uh, House of Wolves. House of Wolves uh, mm. tries to do better on the story front, and it, it kind of succeeded in that regard. They included Prison of Elders, which is kind of like Firefight, uh, Firefight from Halo, but uh, it's not as good because you're sent into like one room, and then you f- go into four different rooms that are always the same like layout every time. So you just kind of travel through these different rooms and kill a bunch of enemies, and then leave, and it's over. And so it was like almost Firefight, but not good enough to be a firefight but it did have one really cool encounter skolas which was this it felt like a raid encounter but it was at the end of a really long firefight session but i mean that's when they really started sort of tweaking a lot of the guns to make a bit more sense um the perks were at their best in that house of wolves stage the loot was pretty pretty close to great um it's also when they started adding some or making some weapon decisions i didn't like they brought down ammo counts on certain guns or decreased range whatever you know all the stuff that fans get upset about that no one else cares about um then taking king comes out and that's when a lot of things really change um there's this massive weapon update that hits like the week before taking king comes out and then there's taking king which is like they went with this more halo-esque style of storytelling the the first mission takes place on a place that isn't just recycled from the rest of the world um 
The Taken King had a new raid again. Uh, people were kind of disappointed that House of Wolves didn't, so they brought back the raid. Um, it, it it was a lot of like really small quality of life improvements because Destiny's never been like a a bad game from like the gameplay perspective. It was always kind of bad from the MMO perspective, like how loot was handled, whether or not enemies were bullet sponges at certain encounters, stuff like that. It's also when Bungie decided to trust the players more. Um, they have these things called strikes, which are like lengthy sort of hardcore missions um not story driven just kind of event driven the the problem with those is that they're they often ended with you fighting a boss for like 20 minutes at the end just shooting this dude who took like no damage at all and nobody liked those so people started leaving yeah that was kind of the worst yeah it was really bad uh with with the taking king they started trusting players more so there's like one encounter where you have to grab this energy ball thing and use it to open a door that makes the boss weaker or something there was one that had two different bosses who would like they had different attack styles and would fight in tandem and if you kill one the other gains his power and so there's they started doing more things that kind of trusted the players to be better at playing the game and as a result the game became a lot more fun um and then they didn't really do anything after that i'm I'm amazed that people stuck with it long enough to actually get to that point well, the first two expansions, I think, were really helpful in that regard because, you know, it was like, hey, well, in a few months, maybe it'll get better. So we had these kind of like few month chunks. And then uh, with Taken King, like I was about to abandon the game and then Taken King came out and it was like, well, actually, I'm going to play this a lot more. And I did. And then I abandoned it for a while and then came back with the, the latest DLC. You know, having a good, consistent flow of expansions helps the game a lot. Um, so they had their major April update and they had their major this update here just now. Let's talk a little bit about Destiny 2. Okay. Um, they dropped a trailer today um, as of the recording of this ep- uh, of this podcast. You did a scene-by-scene breakdown of this, like, 90-second trailer. Yeah. Which, actually, they revealed a lot, right? I mean... Yeah, there was a lot of stuff They were showing a lot of stuff. Yeah, I was really kind of surprised. Um, I... That new enemy really has me intrigued. Um, the fact that certain guns are back or... Uh, you know, just who we're focusing on this time. The the guy, my favorite enemies in the game are finally getting their own story, which is awesome. They've always been kind of off to the side, not really part of the narrative. So to actually focus on them is really cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I think having a face to the villain is good too, because one of the big problems Destiny had was you, like your final boss is this orb. It's like this mess of black stuff that just kind of pulsates. It's not interesting. To have a guy with a face that you're going to fight like that. And that's one lesson they learned with the Taken King with Oryx is having one person to go after. Having that Darth Vader figure makes the, the narrative more compelling. So I'm glad they're introducing a lot of this. At the same time, CG trailer, kind of disappointing. I was really hoping for gameplay. Yeah. Uh, I would rather that they just, you know, dispensed with all the teasing crap and just did... Uh, maybe like a follow four style reveal where like you actually had like a presentation like they did at E3 a couple of years ago um, where they do the countdown and then once the countdown ends at the presentation, they're showing like the opening that are like talking you through it. Like the director is there to say some things like you learn a whole bunch and then you kind of are left to be like, all right, well uh, see you in September. I mean, and maybe that's what they'll do at E3. Like, they'll probably just, hold, like, go, all right, get hyped. They, and everybody was suitably hyped. They did just announce, like, like an hour ago, um, 
they're gonna they said they were gonna show gameplay in may um beta in the summer and then more stuff in the summer that they want to talk about but can't so i don't know what that means get on that marketing hype train man but yeah the the fact that there's gameplay in may does have me excited but at the same time it's may like why are they waiting over a month between cg release and actual gameplay because they know they can it's it's frustrating to me as a consumer but i they know that they can feed they know that they can feed the audience like morsels and just kind of get them hyped up and then keep going all right so if there's one thing that you could have in destiny 2 what would it be shotguns with really long range (laughs) also space combat i i would really love like you know they made halo reach and halo reach had that amazing space dogfight uh, and then the guy who created that left and made House of the Dying Sun, which is this really cool space combat indie game. But I would love to see them bring back space combat and just let our actual space dogfighters do stuff. That would excite me. Yeah. The thing is, like, they put that stuff in the game and then it's never as satisfying as you would like it to be. If it's as good as Halo Reach, I'd be happy. But yeah, I imagine with an MMO, that'd be a little bit harder. Did you play Infinite Warfare? Yeah, I loved that. That was an amazing game. I had some like good space combat, right? Oh, yeah. And what was really amazing is they actually made it good on mouse and keyboard, which I've never mm. seen. I've, like, I cannot think of any space combat game that has good mouse and keyboard combat, but that did. TIE Fighter. Yeah, that's, that's, that's going back a ways. Yeah, I guess that did. <laughs> I'd forgotten it. it. It did. I mean, it... I mean, it wasn't amazing or anything. Joysticks were still better, but I played a lot of TIE Fighter with my mouse and keyboard. Yeah, I remember that. Back it's in the day. Just, I'd forgotten because it has literally been like 100 years. Yeah, well, uh, Destiny 2 is coming out in September. We're going to keep riding right, right along. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I guess like we're all kind of kind of going to give it another shot at um at us gamer like i I feel like it's a chance for a fresh start as it were um because i I sort of felt like i played the original destiny when it first came out and i was like this is all right i guess um but i never fell in with a group and also like all of the problems that it was having like really put me off um and so once taking king came around like i felt super behind like i just felt like all of a sudden, like, the community was, like, so in its own bubble, and, like, I felt like I had to put in so much work just to catch up. It didn't necessarily feel like a game I could play casually, even though I probably could have. A lot of people came back then. Yeah. So it, it worked. Oh, yeah, but... no, you can totally, you totally could have come back um, at Taken King. In fact, that was probably the ideal point to come in. <laughs> I actually bought that stupid game twice. I, I bought the original vanilla version and then i bought it again so that i could get the expansions that and then i ended up playing it for like a total of 10 hours or something Ouch. like that <laughs> yeah it was brutal but i mean live and learn right i but, have a thousand hours I mean, in the game so you know holy crap i i, I don't even know how you do it's that it's the only I, it's I, the only game i have that i put that much time into um through most of 2015 it was the it was pretty much the only game i played for a while damn I mean, I've been there, right? Like, I've been in that point where it's just like, I have played an insane amount of this particular game. That's actually kind of me and Madden as it happens. But but now I've got the US Gamer team, and I'm going to make them all play Destiny with me. So I'm going to have built-in friends. It'll be great. And they're all going to hate me by the end of this. But it doesn't matter. Um, so we will check in again with you later, Doc. Um, but 
Oh, really quickly. Are you playing Andromeda? Yes. Yes, I am. What are your thoughts really quickly, like 30 seconds? Uh, better than it gets credit for. Uh, pretty much the Dragon yeah. Age Inquisition of Mass Effect, but I really like the But Dragon plot. Age Inquisition is a better game. Yeah, it's it's more competently executed. Um, they have about the same amount of bugs on my end, which is a lot. I had entire quest lines I couldn't Everybody decided the that they hate Dragon Age Inquisition, and it so does not deserve the hate that it gets, and it actually really annoys me. I, I, don't, I don't hate it, but Andromeda, I think, is... is pretty much on pretty much on par with it other than inquisition having way better like interpersonal reactions or relationships um not only that but like dragon age inquisition executed its main quest way better than dragon age as uh, mass effect uh like there are a couple of sequences particularly like the mask ball and like the kind of the final stand of the wardens that just is miles better than anything you will find in Mass Effect Andromeda. Yeah, I haven't I haven't finished Andromeda, so I can't completely comment on that. But I will say that it's made me make decisions that I didn't want to make um, a few times in in mm-hmm. a in a good way. I like when I I actually agonize over decisions and like uh, choosing whether or not to save the Krogan or to save the uh, Salarian at one point early on in the campaign. That was actually kind of tough for me because they both deserve to live. So I kind of had to condemn one to die. Spoiler alert. It felt bad. Yeah, this is a bit of a spoiler, but it's early on. Um, and there are a bunch of decisions like that that I've encountered that kind of make me like the game. The plot's kind of interesting. I like where the villains are coming from. I like their their envy okay. of humanity. You know, mm-hmm. they, they have this kind of, hey, we're superior attitude, but they're also very envious of what humans can do. And so that makes for a kind of interesting power dynamic. So, I mean, there's stuff to like in the game, but... You know, I played a bunch, and now I'm kind of looking into other things. I'll probably get back to it. I will finish it, but it, like Inquisition, it's a game that kind of falls off. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, uh, maybe one day I will do a spoiler cast, or maybe, I don't know, like I wrote an article uh, yesterday that was just like, uh, the problem with Mass Effect and Drama is not its tech problems, which are really the least of its problems. The, at the end of the day, it just it feels really flat. Like, it does. It is not a memorable game to me. Um, I remember Dragon Age Inquisition a lot more clearly than I will ever remember Mass Effect Andromeda at the end of the day. So, I, I feel pretty much the same way about both games. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, Doc. Uh, y- yeah, you've been contributing a lot more to the site lately. Um, you wrote a thing about how you thought Mass Effect 1 was really awesome. I love it. And... Yeah, I've been slowly but surely like coming around on that opinion. Like, I, I kind of want to go back and just check it out just to uh, see how I feel about it. We had um, Rowan Kaiser on last week, and we also were talking at some length about the Mass Effect series. Um, so, because it's kind of that time to do it. But, um, and of course, you are kind of our Destiny correspondent. Um, but is there anywhere else that we can find you? Um, on Twitter. <laughs> I tweet way too much. Um, you know, sometimes I, I freelance for other sites, but. All right. Uh, yeah, you're on Twitter at Forget Amnesia. And indeed, you do tweet a lot. And you can also be found on Kotaku, where you're writing various things. But in any case, uh, yeah, thanks for dropping by, Doc. And we'll see you again. Cool. Thanks for having me. All right, that's the end of our episode. Axe of Blood God is a U.S. gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on Twitter. 
I'm at the underscore catbot. Katie is at Katie. Y-U-M-E-C-A-T-Y, and Nadia is at Nadia Oxford, and Doc is at Forget Amnesia. Um, yeah, many ways to connect to us on US Gamer as well, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, uh, Twitter, the whole works, US Gamer Net. Uh, we covered a lot this week. Uh, there was a lot to go over. Um, but yeah, so next week, I think that it's about time that we do some listener emails. Um, you guys have been sending me stuff. I, I really want to kind of delve into them but i haven't really had a chance until now but things will calm down a little bit maybe i'll do a chrono trigger report as well but until then yeah uh keep checking our site um we're gonna have a lot of persona 5 coverage uh over the next week uh promise that we won't get too spoilery (laughs) until we get to that point but in the meantime if there's anything that you want us to cover um yeah send us an email uh i'm at at cat bailey at usgamer.net and you can also reach us at usgamer at usgamer.net and yeah like talk about your favorite rpg that you feel like doesn't get a lot of press talk about how you're feeling about destiny or persona 5 or um final fantasy 15's dlc talk about whatever the heck you want we may read your email on the site uh, or on the podcast but until then um i've been cat bailey and for nadia and doc and katie thanks for listening until next time happy adventuring